Well, good morning. It's really great to be with you, and I feel like I, I love my dear brother, Matt McCullough, too much. I, I, I've got to make a correction there. It would be a lot more than 10 years, trust me. I, I enjoy that he lets me hang out with him, so that's, that's a great thing. I'm a big fan, and, and I, I'll bring greetings to you as well from Grace Community Church. I want you to know that we follow you what's going on. We pray for you and rejoice at the work that God is not only doing in this congregation, but through this congregation. And so it's a, it's a delight to, to me, just a, it's a treasure just to be able to come here and just open up the scriptures with you today. So that's what we'll do now. I want to invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. Take your Bibles or your devices and open to Hebrews 11. Now, let me just ask while you're turning there, how many of you um, watched the World Cup? Got, oh, yeah, great. Well, I, I think it was quite an amazing thing. Uh, the first round began on June the 12th, and then the finals were played on July the 13th. So for 32 days, to me, it felt like the entire globe positioned itself around the big screens and the televisions, and they were just watching intently the World Cup. And as they did, the popularity of the game reached, I'm sure, the highest it's ever been, which I think is great. I'm all for that. But what I need to share with you this morning is that I have always been, and will only be, there will only be one kind of football for me. I grew up as a little kid watching football. I remember when I was maybe six or seven years old, I would sit by my dad's chair in the den, and we would watch the Dallas Cowboys on Sunday afternoon. And uh, as a kid, my dad and I would go out and and we would play football, but we didn't just go in the backyard and throw the ball around. We would go to an open field nearby where I would learn to run real pass patterns until my dad's arm couldn't hold out any longer. By the time I was nine years old, I was running slants, out routes, square ends, post patterns. I mean, I love this game of football. And while I watched every game I could, but now you've got to understand that was pre-ESPN, which I know is impossible for some of y'all to imagine. Pre-ESPN, they would usually have a couple of games on the weekends. And I would watch every game I could, but I just didn't watch the games. I studied the game. I love football. When I was old enough... I played football throughout middle school, high school, and one year of college. Several years ago, I had the opportunity to coach middle school football for about four years, and it was just a fantastic experience. I love it. So, obviously, since I love this game so much, it probably doesn't surprise you to know that I've always dreamed about going to Canton, Ohio, to visit the NFL Hall of Fame. I mean, I've just, it's, I've always been on my bucket list. Unfortunately, Canton is really not on the way to anywhere unless you're going to Cleveland, you know. And I checked, I researched like crazy. I didn't have any family or distant relatives in Ohio, so I never really had an excuse to go there. My, my wife, Elaine, who has been a great supporter of my love for football, would have surely allowed us to take our vacation there. However, after she checked very closely and discovered that there was no beach nearby, that vacation never happened. So, a few years ago, I got a call. And I found out that I would be making a business trip with a client to Cleveland, Ohio. Oh, 
It was great. I began to plot before the phone call was over how we could get there. We're only one hour away from Canton. So sure enough, the day came. We got our work done as quickly and efficiently as we could. And then, as I made sure, we all made our way down to Canton, Ohio. And and I'm really not trying to make up a story uh, to make it sound good. When we arrived at the NFL Hall of Fame three hours before closing, pulled up into that parking lot, I promise you, I felt like a kid who just got to Disney World for the first time. I was so excited. I could hardly stand it. When we walked through the doors, for me, the magic began. I was completely mesmerized by all these NFL greats that I'd watched growing up and, and, it, and it admired. I mean, they're amazing stories. I mean, from Jim Thorpe to Jim Brown to Dick Buckus to Deacon Jones, from Roger Staubach to Joe Montana and Troy Aikman. I mean, so many great players and coaches and teams. And I can also assure you that I was among the last visitors that was sort of escorted out of the building at closing time because I didn't want to leave. I could have stayed for another three hours. It was a great experience. But as I recounted that experience, I was sure about one thing. So many great players, so many great coaches and teams, and yet there was one common thread. It was the game itself, the game of football. The the game is what made them. These players would have not had the opportunity had they not had the game. Without the game, there would be no great stories to tell. The game was bigger than them all. Hebrews 11 is referred to by some as a sort of hall of fame made up of spiritual giants. These heroes of the faith are recognized for their powerful examples and their special contribution to the history of the church and Christianity And while the perception of these biblical characters often appear to be larger than life, I think it is very important for us to discipline ourselves, to take a close look at their lives, to see the real people, to see the realities that they lived in. Because there was something and someone much greater than all of them. They were a part of something bigger than themselves, because they had faith in someone bigger and greater than themselves. There's only one reason the stories of these men and women are being recounted and studied thousands of years later, and it is because of the incredible God that extended faith to them in the first place. So how did these giants in the faith achieve and accomplish so much? How did these heroes do what heroes do? which is to overcome great odds and persevere mightily to do something special? Well, the answer is, they didn't. God did. But but how did God accomplish these great works through through them? Well, the answer is given to us in chapter 11, by faith. In fact, it is so important that we grasp this faith, this truth, that the writer of Hebrews uses the phrase, by faith, 18 times in this one chapter. And we need faith, don't we? Don't we struggle with faith? Just like the Christians in the first century, we need faith to persevere in this life. Each of us has our own weaknesses, our own vulnerabilities, our own sin. And so we need faith in Christ in order to live out the life that he's called us to. We need faith because the world we live in is is a difficult place. We live in a broken world. We live in a fallen world that has been spoiled and infected by the deadly virus known to us as sin. 
And so we need faith because everything is so complicated. Life is so complex. The choices are rarely good versus bad. The circumstances are seldom ideal. Our world is broken and we need help. And I believe the Lord has given us Hebrews 11 to help us navigate this broken world we live in by faith. And so uh, I would invite you to stand with me as we read our text today. We're in Hebrews 11, beginning with verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw that the child was beautiful and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. He considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. By faith, he kept the Passover and sprinkled the blood so that the destroyer of the firstborn might not touch them. By faith, the people crossed the Red Sea as on dry land, but the Egyptians, when they attempted to do the same, were drowned. The reading of God's word. You may be seated. Today, our focus on this passage is on Moses, and he was truly a remarkable man in the history of the church. Moses was known to be Israel's greatest prophet, highly revered in the Jewish community. He was a unique person. If you think about it, he was the one man that God communicated directly with face-to-face. He was the one man whom God used to give Israel its law. He was the one man whom God used to give us the foundation of his word as he authored the first five books of the Bible. Moses was a godly man. Numbers 12.3 tells us, that he was more humble than any man on the face of the earth. And then listen to this amazing epitaph of Moses given to us in Deuteronomy 34. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, for no one has ever shown the mighty power or performed the awesome deeds that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. He was a remarkable man, and yet he was a man. We need to remember that. Like our other heroes in Hebrews 11, he was human. He was a sinner. He had flaws. He had struggles. We need to know this. Our text today, interestingly enough, doesn't actually start with Moses. It starts with his parents, which I find to be extremely fascinating. We have parenting right here in Hebrews 11. There are Parents that made the Hall of Fame of Faith. Are you kidding me? Really? Parents? That's right. I think I can safely say in my life that there's been no experience quite like parenting in the world. Okay? It is exhilarating, humbling, frustrating, rewarding, draining, and fantastic all at the same time. It's amazing. Some of you are smiling because you're just getting started. Well, come on. It's going to be fun. I've heard some people say that children are brought into this world without instruction manuals, and therein lies the problem. Others have said the problem 
that we have today is that anyone can be a parent. It doesn't even require a parenting license. All I know is this. I've been a parent 31 years. I have three adult children, and my wife and I, uh, we love our children beyond words. Interestingly enough and surprisingly, 16 years ago, Elaine and I were asked to write a book, a curriculum, and record a video teaching series on parenting. But let me assure you that we are not experts on parenting. In fact, I would say that I know less about parenting today than I did 31 years ago. How's that for some encouragement? This is the one thing I can guarantee you about parenting. When that child is born, you have no idea what you've gotten yourself into. And while that is true for you and me, it was even more so for the parents of Moses. Verse 23 tells us about them. And listen, for you and me, as we seek to navigate a broken world, I want you to understand that there is a tension in living by faith. There is a tension, not just as a parent, but as a person. Because we all carry this complex set of human emotions as we encounter challenging and often difficult circumstances and adversity. And as Christ followers, we're reading Hebrews 11, we're being instructed to live by faith with this dynamic at play. The world is so broken. Exodus 6.20 gives us the names of Moses' parents. They were Amram and Jochebed. They had an older son, Aaron, and a daughter, Miriam. What we need to really get our heads around is the fact that they lived in a dreadful time in the history of Israel. It had been many generations after the death of Joseph, and the new king of Egypt didn't know Joseph, and so he had no allegiances to him or his people. All he knew was that the population of Israel was exploding and beginning to outnumber the Egyptians. So, out of fear and concern, he enslaved them and set taskmasters over them, and he oppressed them. And yet, the more he oppressed them, the more the Israelites multiplied in number. So Pharaoh felt like he had to do something radical. He commanded the Hebrew midwives to murder all male babies immediately upon death. When that didn't work, he commanded that that all newborn baby boys were to be tossed into the Nile River where they would drown and serve as food for the crocodiles. All parents were instructed to do that. So welcome to Amram and Jochebed's world. It was in this intense season of brutality and persecution that Jochebed gave birth to Moses. She and Amram knew what they were supposed to do. They knew what the king had ordered them to do. They knew what all the other Hebrew parents had been doing when they gave birth to a male baby, and that was to take him and toss him in the Nile. And all we're given here in order to try to understand what was in the heart of Amram and Jochebed is is this one statement. It says they saw something in the child. The ESV and NAS translate that when they they saw him, he was a beautiful child. In other words, there was something attractive in his physical presence, in his countenance. Some translations say that they saw he was no ordinary child. All I know is I've never met a parent yet who didn't think their baby was beautiful. 
I mean, whether it's true or not, all babies are beautiful, right? So to me, that doesn't help me. All I know, we can't know for certain what they saw in Moses, but it clearly had a powerful impact on them. And somehow, somehow God gave Amram and Jochebed a spiritual insight into his significance. And then notice this last phrase of the verse. And they were not afraid of the king's edict. All right, time out. What what in the heck does that mean? Before we go write Amram and Jochebed off as some kind of super parents, faith giants, because they didn't experience any fear, therefore you and I can't even relate to them, before we write them off, let's look a little closer. Let's be real. This is not the meaning of this statement. As a parent, I cannot fathom what they must have been experiencing in their heart and souls. Can you imagine the tension that they felt? No, no, David, it says they were not afraid of the king's edict. Listen, if they weren't afraid, if they had no fear, why did they hide the child? They hid him. Of course they experienced fear. When the scripture says that they were not afraid of the king, it is conveying to us that Amram and Jochebed believed that God was greater than Pharaoh. They, believed, they had more fear of God than they had fear of Pharaoh. It is conveying to us that they believed that somehow God wanted to use their son Moses. They were trusting in God, and of course they were fearful. And yet, they were trusting in God And yet, that didn't alleviate the intensity of the situation. Do you feel this intensity? Can you imagine how Amram and Jochebed's hearts must have skipped a beat every time baby Moses cried in the night, wondering if there was an Egyptian guard nearby? Can you imagine their thoughts and their constant speculation as they inventoried all the neighbors and friends wondering if they might surrender to the pressure and give him up? They were certainly brave people. As they stood with courage, they clinged to their faith in God, but they were parents. And remember, they already had a son and a daughter. They knew they would lose their life if Moses was ever discovered. But while it's one thing to be willing to give your life for a child, they had to consider their other children. What about Aaron and Miriam? What would happen to them if they were found out? And can you imagine? Can you imagine the emotions of Amram and Jochebed as they held the three-month-old baby Moses in their arms, kissed him for the last time before they set him in a basket and put him in the Nile River? Their best idea for saving his life was still a long shot at best, humanly speaking. And yet God took their courage, their creativity, and divinely orchestrated a sequence of events where Pharaoh's daughter rescues Moses and Jochebed ends up being the Hebrew woman who would nurse Moses and nurture him and teach him the ways of God. What a great story. Yay. Yay, Amram and Jochebed. It's a great story. What a great ending. Except we didn't live through it. And you and I, brothers and sisters, have to live through our faith stories today. And there is a tension of living by faith. 
Sometimes we have the mistaken idea that to walk by faith means that we live carefree lives and we always feel light as a feather. Please, please, don't let that kind of false illusion cause you to stumble or give up. To walk by faith in a broken world means that there is going to be tension in your soul, tension between fear and faith, tension between initiating and waiting, tension between trying to manipulate the circumstances versus trusting in the providence of God. What are we to do with this tension? We can't deny it or pretend it doesn't exist, though we may try. We we must not allow it to disqualify us because we don't have the right kind of faith or we don't have enough faith. No. We must acknowledge its presence and know that God will give us enough grace and he will give us enough faith to press through those hard places and those impossible seasons so that we can hold on to him in all things. This is what faith looks like. It looks great at the end. It's a beautiful story. But in the middle, when you're living it, it can be hard and it can be ugly at times. But by grace, God will see us through I also want you to see in this text, not only is there a tension in living by faith, there is a sacrifice of living by faith. There's actually a gap of 40 years between verses 23 and 24. Pharaoh's daughter had adopted Moses and brought him up as her own son. According to Stephen's sermon in Acts 7, Moses had been instructed in all wisdom of the Egyptians and he was mighty in his words and deeds. So not only was he taught the ways of God and his own heritage as a Hebrew through his mother, but he had also been educated and fully integrated into the Egyptian culture. So now he was 40 years old. He was in a position to enjoy immense wealth, prestige, and pleasure among the Egyptian elite. He didn't have to earn it. He didn't have to work for it. It had been given to him as for him being a member of the royal family. And yet, the Scripture tells us that Moses chose to be true to his Hebrew identity and his God. Look at this. He chose to be mistreated with the people of God rather than taking the easy road. His choice resulted in a supreme sacrifice There are sacrifices in walking by faith. Life as a Christ follower does not come trouble-free. Despite the popular theology floating around in the American church today that attempts to minimize and sometimes even eliminate any form of sacrifice, you can have victory, you can overcome... Well, of course we can. We are overcomers in Christ. But that doesn't mean there won't be costs and there won't be sacrifices in this broken world. And so the question needs to be raised. And you and I may not be that comfortable with it. I can tell you I'm not, but we have to go there. What sacrifices are you making as a Christ follower today? What sacrifices are you avoiding? Which ones are you trying to go around? And what about the sacrifices you are currently making 
do you find deep down inside you are resenting those? As Christ followers, we are called to make sacrifices on a regular basis. Some are big, like my friend who sacrificed a promotion because he refused to compromise his faith and play the game and party with the senior execs in his company. Other sacrifices are small and subtle. The sacrifice of pleasure sometimes. The sacrifice of time in certain friendships. The sacrifice of personal preference in favor of not causing a brother or sister to stumble. And what about this? The sacrifice of being misunderstood. Moses definitely felt that one. Acts 7.25 tells us that he supposed that his brothers would understand that, what, that God was giving them salvation by his hand, but they didn't understand. Moses clearly believed that God had called him to deliver Israel out of the hand of Pharaoh and Egypt, and yet his own people misunderstood his intentions and his convictions. I, beyond, it's beyond me as I really try to get inside Moses' head. What was he thinking? I, I, how did he make these sacrifices? Where did he reach down and find the willingness to make these tough choices? Because frankly, I've got some of those tough choices to make. Where can I find the willingness to make the sacrifices that God's calling me to make? Well, verse 26 answers the question. It, said, it tells us that he was looking for the reward. He was looking for the reward. No apologies necessary. Moses was looking for the reward. Funny, isn't it? We all seem to understand the principle of sacrifice and delayed gratification when it comes to athletics, academics, and even our careers. We know that if you make sacrifices and work hard now, it will pay off later. So the athlete gives up greasy food and leisure time in order to work out and train because he or she believes that there is a reward in being able to compete at the highest levels, right? And the academic sacrifices sleep and social life in order to study so they can excel in the classroom. And early in their careers, the professional sacrifices personal and family time so they can work long hours because they're convinced that they will be rewarded down the road. We get that. So why is it when it comes to our faith that somehow we start getting uncomfortable when the word sacrifice is mentioned? You see, there's a promise. There are promises that God has made to us. There is a reward, brothers and sisters. And we are invited to look to the reward, to aim on the reward, to, to think about that reward as we make the sacrifices, because as, as Paul wrote in Romans 8.18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Isn't that beautiful? There's something greater out there. So anything we deal with today doesn't even come close to the incredible reward that awaits us. Paul said it best in Philippians 3. But whatever things were gained to me, those things I've counted as loss for the sake of Christ. More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I've suffered the loss of all things and count them but rubbish so that I may gain Christ. 
Well, there's something else we need to see here, and that is the perspective that comes through faith. Verse 27 tells us, By faith he left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Now, at first reading, some biblical critics might want to throw the penalty flag for contradiction in this verse. Because when you compare it to Exodus 2, let me just read Exodus 2, verse 11. One day when Moses had grown up, he went out to his people, and he looked on their burdens, and he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his people. He looked this way and that, and seeing no one, he struck down the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And when he went out the next day, behold, two Egyptians were struggling together. Two Hebrews were struggling together. And he said to the man in the wrong, Why do you strike your companion? He answered, Who made you a prince and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, Surely the thing is known. Exodus claims that Moses was afraid. Hebrews says he was not afraid of the king. What's true? Well, if we trace the writings of the Hebrews, we see consistent evidence that the author stays true to the biblical record. He is certainly not contradicting it. As one one commentator put it, he is seeking to interpret it. The fear of Moses that is relayed in Exodus has more to do with realizing that this was not God's timing for deliverance. I heard John Piper give an interesting theory on this. He feels like Moses could have gone back and recovered. After he killed the Egyptian soldier, he could have gone back to the Pharaoh and said, well, sure, I killed him. You should have seen what he was doing. Listen, I know the Hebrews. If there's a way to get more out of them, I can show you how. I mean, he, that's possible. We don't know. But what we do know is that it states here that he left Egypt in faith. So once again, just like his parents He experienced the emotions of fear and uncertainty, and yet Moses believed that God was greater than Pharaoh. Moses feared God more than he feared Pharaoh. But how how did he get through this time? Well, verse 27 tells us, For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. When I read these words, I'm drawn back to the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4.17, where he writes, for momentary light affliction, is producing for us an eternal weight of glory far beyond all comparison. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. There's a perspective that comes through faith, and only through faith. Please understand, it's not that we're to go out and get perspective and then go live by faith. That's what we want to do. If I can get enough knowledge, enough perspective, now I can go live by faith. That's not what the Scripture shows us here. It shows us that we live by faith, and then we receive the gift of spiritual eyesight. Then we are given perspective. When we live by faith, there is an eternal perspective that God graciously extends to us. It is through the fiery test, it is through persevering in faith that the Holy Spirit begins to open the blinds so we can see His sunlight and gain His perspective. Our faith becomes our eyes. A few weeks ago, I had a conversation with a dear brother who has endured some very hard times. 
a brother who at one time was a part of, very, a, part of a very fruitful ministry where he made sacrifices and he endured suffering. But due to some events that occurred in the past, my friend finds himself in a place where he has lost all hope of future possibilities in ministry. We talked. I saw the sadness in his eyes. And it's like the the Lord gave me just a, a moment of inspiration. I looked him right in the eye and I told him, I believe with all my heart he is more prepared today to be used of God than at any other time in his life. And he looked at me and it said, David, how can you say that after what I've lost? And I told him this. I said, when we walk through the deepest of valleys, we gain a perspective that we can't gain anywhere else. And if we will persist in faith, we will see that. We will embrace that perspective. From a human perspective, I mean, Moses was 40 years old when he committed this murder. He fled to the land of Midian. From a human perspective, he had been put on the shelf by God and labeled, usefulness to God expired. He spent the next 40 years living by faith, but probably wondering if God had forgotten him. And then God showed up in a burning bush. But this time, Moses had a whole new perspective. This time, he was ready to receive what God had been preparing him for. We have to understand and embrace the truth that our struggles, our sufferings, our sacrifices are the means of God's work in our lives so that we will be ready to serve him in the moment that he calls us to. Brothers and sisters, we desperately need spiritual eyesight today. It is a reflection on the church's discipleship when believers respond to life's hardships and difficulties in the same way the unbelieving world does. We need all, all of us, we need discipleship. We need the perspective that comes to us through faith. Finally, in closing, I want you to be reminded of the deliverance that comes by faith. Verse 28 refers to the last of ten plagues that led to Israel's exodus from Egypt. This was where God took the life of all male firstborns. And yet he provided a way of salvation and deliverance through the sprinkled lamb's blood placed on the doorways of those who believed, those who had faith. Verse 29 refers to the miraculous crossing of the Red Sea where the people of God passed through dry land and were spared death at the hand of Pharaoh. These two powerful deliverances of God were a foreshadowing, a precursor, if you will, of the salvation that would come through Jesus Christ. Colossians 1.13 reminds us that he has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. And believers, as believers in Christ, by faith, we have been delivered. We have been delivered and we are being delivered every day from the darkness and the curse of sin. And in the end, by faith, we will be delivered once for all. Praise be to God. A couple months ago, the ministry that I direct to the marketplace, we uh, hosted a national breakfast event. And our guest this year was a 
gentleman by the name of John Clancy. John was formerly the top producer for Jordan Belford, known to many as the Wolf of Wall Street. In fact, recently there was a hit movie called The Wolf of Wall Street that depicts Jordan Belford and tells his story of his rise to success and his subsequent fall as he was convicted for fraud. So as I interviewed John Clancy, he told his story, how when he was 21 years old, he went to work for Jordan Belford. He made a million dollars his first year. Within the next couple of years, he was making three or four million a year. He told us of the hard way they lived. They did drugs three or four times a week. They had prostitutes in every week. And then everything came crashing down. A week after Jordan and his partner were arrested, John and nine other associates of the top associates in the firm were arrested as well. John tells how he consulted his attorney and found that he was probably looking at a minimum of 20 to 30 years in prison. John tells about during that time as he was waiting for the trial, he tells about how God worked in his life, and through the witness of his future father-in-law, he came to faith in Christ. He finally just said, I give up. I don't care what happens. I give up. And it's an amazing story because God delivered him from prison as he was miraculously acquitted. He and one other were the only ones that were. He told me later, he said, it's not that I didn't do wrong things, but what they were charging charging me for, I didn't do. As he would say later, though, the real deliverance was from his old life and when he was given new life in Christ. But one of the things that John shared, which was an amazing thing, he talked about during this interview, he kept kept mentioning this amazing peace that he was experiencing in his heart. And so as he talked about it, it became very interesting. He said, you know, if you've never experienced the peace of Christ, you don't know it because you don't know what you don't know. And he talked about how when he experienced this this connection, this reconciliation with God, he experienced this amazing peace. And I said, John, listen, my last question to him was, you know, there are a lot of people here. There are a lot of people who probably never experienced this peace that you're talking about. There are probably a lot of believers who maybe turned their back on God and they're not experiencing this peace that that God gives to us, what would you say to them? And his answer was really interesting. He said, I would say this, drop your pride for five minutes. Drop your pride for five minutes and see what God will do in your heart. Let's pray. Father, I thank you. You haven't left this journey of faith that we have been called to, you haven't left it up to us to imagine what it might be like. Thank you so much, God, that we don't have to endure the suffering and the tension and the sacrifice that we're called to endure in the dark. You've given us your scriptures. You've given us the word of God. And you tell us and you show us and you reveal to us what it's really like for these men and women thousands of years ago to struggle and walk by faith. And we see how you are so faithful. You were the faithful party in the whole transaction. And you delivered them by your faithfulness as they just held on to you. So God, I pray that we would consider the faithfulness 
in our lives that you have extended to us. And oh God, now that we know, we know that we're not alone, that the struggles that we feel, the disappointments, the heartache, the pain that we are experiencing in ourselves, we are not alone. You have made a way. So Lord, I pray that we would have the grace just to drop our pride for five minutes so that we might receive this beautiful, precious gift that you offer to us. In Jesus' name, amen.